Well, good morning and happy Easter to you all. Wherever you are gathered, we are happy that you joined us this morning. Uh, It is good to be with you, church. A special thank you and welcome to the Peters family. What a treat that was to see all of your beautiful smiling faces this morning and to hear a little bit from you. Um, Eleona and Queen Esther, I have been missing your high fives too. And I really wish that I could give you a big Easter high five this morning. Uh, But we will celebrate together. He is risen. He is risen indeed. The fast is over. The feast is upon us. Now it is time to party and celebrate. Would you uh, join me in prayer as we begin the message this morning? Father, it is for this reason that we are followers of you. It is for this very reason that you have been raised from the dead. That the son that you sent to die on our behalf was put on the cross that bore our sins and was put in the grave. And on that third day, the day we mark today, we celebrate because he was resurrected. We give you thanks for this reason to celebrate. Amen. Well, we have come to our final week in our uh, Teach Us to Pray sermon series. This sermon series, you remember, we've been looking at the Lord's Prayer. We've been walking through it petition by petition, and this is our last week. And to begin this last week, I actually have sort of a reverse Easter egg hunt for you, all right? So this is a, this is a parent's Easter egg hunt. Kids, you can put your parents to the test for this Easter egg hunt. I want you first to, to ask them if they know how the Lord's Prayer ends. What is the last sort of line in the Lord's Prayer? I'll I'll give you a minute here. You can ask them. And uh, if they did know, that's wonderful. Now the real question is, can can they quote chapter and verse of where it's found in the Bible? Can they look it up for you? I'm going to step in here because we could be here a long time if they're still looking for it in the Bible. The truth is that that this last line that we're going to explore this morning, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen, is actually not found in most Bibles. Now, perhaps your Bible does have this line included in the text, or uh, maybe there's sort of um, brackets around it that says, you know, some manuscripts included this. Maybe there's a a little footnote that you can look to the bottom of the page in your Bible at the end of Matthew chapter 6 verse 13 and it says uh, some early manuscripts include this final line. But by and large most Bibles don't include this in the text of Scripture. Well, What's that all about? Why is that the case? Well the truth is uh, the earliest and the most reliable copies we have of the New Testament of these Gospels, Matthew and Luke, don't include that line at the end of the prayer. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not sort of early in how Christians started to use it in worship. In fact, we have a a document called the Didache, which is uh, a funny title. It really just means the the teaching or the teaching of the 12 apostles. And the Didache is about how to do church. And in it, it says you should recite the Lord's Prayer together. Hmm, Interesting, novel idea. And when it recites the Lord's Prayer, it actually has this line at the bottom. And some people think that the Didache is actually earlier than some of our New Testament writings, earlier even perhaps than the Gospel of John. 
So probably within the first century, within sort of a generation of Jesus, even if these weren't Jesus' own words that ended the prayer, Christians had begun to pray in this way, closing the Lord's Prayer with these words. We'll probably never know if they were actually Jesus' words that didn't get included in the earliest writings or, or if they weren't Jesus' words that got added to after. Uh, either way, I, I think it's entirely appropriate still for us to look at them this morning because this morning they fit perfectly with the whole prayer. In fact, I think one of the reasons that the early church included them in the prayer is because it sort of wraps up the Lord's Prayer. You remember we began the, the first, very first petition of the prayer, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Lord, make your name be holy across the whole earth. It's a, a beginning of praise and prayer to God. And now as we go through all the petitions and, and finally come back right at the end with these lines, again we see this, this praise. And so we talk about this last line as a doxology. Again, just a fancy word that means we're, we're lifting up praise to God. It comes full circle and, and creates this beautifully enclosed prayer that we know as the Lord's Prayer. Whether it was, in fact, the words of Jesus uh, exactly or not, it, it completely fits with the mind of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus and the whole life of Jesus. It, it, it is entirely appropriate to preach on this line in the Lord's Prayer and to say it when we recite the Lord's Prayer. You know, there's some people that think that it's actually a, sort of a borrowed ending from a prayer that King David gives us in First Chronicles. So let, let me read that for you and you can sort of hear it. David says, Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Uh, if you didn't catch it in there, power, glory, and kingdom. Praising God for his kingdom and power and glory is such a wonderful and powerful way to end this prayer. We've said a few times in this series that uh, praying is simply about talking with God, about communicating with God. And of course, that's exactly what prayer is at its most basic. But have you ever stopped to think about how um, our prayers, not all of our prayers will endure into eternity? What do I mean by that? Uh, have you ever stopped to think that the things that we pray about, the things that I take time in my day to, to lift up to God, to talk to God about, not all of them will actually even really make sense in eternity, right? I mean, let's think about what has been involved in the Lord's Prayer up to this point, right? Holy be your name. Now, that will endure forever, right? And in fact, we know that. We, we just looked at that in a series on the book of Revelation, the last book in the New Testament. We, we see that the creatures that are gathered around the throne of God into all eternity are crying what? Holy, holy, holy is your name. So that's going to continue on. That's going to keep going. But your kingdom come, your will be done. Guess what? 
It will. <laughs> the kingdom will come. It will be fulfilled. Uh, give us today our daily bread. That's not going to be necessary anymore. We will be sustained by things other than uh, human bread. All temptation will be, get, will be gone. Can I get an amen for that? And evil will be the upholstery under the footstool of Jesus Christ, who has put evil and the enemy under his feet. But in eternity, we will still be declaring that his name is holy and that it is God's kingdom and his power and his glory from ages to ages, for all eternity. I love how Wesley Hill puts this. He says, petitions will not be necessary in God's future. We will cease asking God to supply our needs since we will be entirely satisfied. All that will remain is to praise God and enjoy his benevolent reign, to rejoice in what his power has achieved and to see his glory. You see, friends, talking with God will never cease. Talking and communicating with God will be our eternal reality. But the kind of prayers that we're praying, the kind of communication we're having with God actually will change. Think about the different parts of the Lord's Prayer that we've, we've practiced, we've prayed through, we've talked about, we've wrestled with over this series already. Prayers of what? Provision. God, will you provide? Prayers of pardon. God, I am broken and I need your help and your forgiveness. And prayers of protection. God, watch over us. Look after us. Care for us. Notice us in this time. These prayers will disappear. They'll fade away on the other side of eternity. But our prayers of praise will never cease. They will continue. And Easter Sunday is, is the beginning of that end. Right? It's the beginning of that end, of that eternity. It's a new reality breaking in. The kingdom of God is that eternal reality that we will live into one day. Easter Sunday, that historical reality of the resurrected Jesus is what compels us not only to declare God's holiness, but to say a definitive and a collective yes and amen to the inbreaking of God's kingdom and his power and his glory. Yes and amen. Yet, it is still a declaration we make knowing that God's kingdom and power and glory has broken into the world through the resurrection, but is not yet complete or fulfilled. How do we know that? Well, we know that because we continue to live somewhere in the middle. Somewhere between that first Easter weekend, Jesus' resurrection day, and that final summing up of all things in Christ, the resurrection of the rest of us. From the first fruits of Christ to the last crop that is harvested among us. That first Easter changed everything. And yet, so many things still remain the same. Uh, to declare otherwise, I think, is, is sort of uh, ignorance. It's not, it's not acknowledging the reality that we live in. There is a lot that still remains 
the same. I mean, think about it. That first Easter, those Jesus followers were social distancing and self-isolating. They were hiding in that upper room, locked. They didn't want contact with anyone. Sort of like we're doing today. (laughs) It was clear then, on that first Resurrection Sunday, as it still is now, that, that the final completion of the kingdom and the power and the glory of God is not yet revealed. And we continue to pray and wait and long for that day because we live in a broken world, a fallen world, a sinful world that that has just been messed up by humanity's sin. Yet, as I said, the first fruit of that harvest, the one who was put on the cross, put in the grave, and then risen from the grave on Easter Sunday, has made a statement about the hope that we are living toward, the hope that we are leaning into in these days. Let me tell you a little story. On August 5th, 2010, just about a decade ago, there was a collapse of the main ramp of the San Jose mine in Chile, and 33 miners were trapped. They were trapped more than 2,000 feet below the earth's surface. The distance and the sheer volume of earth that collapsed the mine shaft made it impossible to establish any sort of communication with the 33 miners. Above the surface, there was immediate chaos and there was worldwide attention. Within a day, there was uh, more than 130 people working around the clock on this rescue mission. And below the surface, the, the miners sort of stumbled in near complete darkness to, to their gathering point, a little refuge that had been built. And they uh, discovered to their amazement that all 33 of them were alive. They were relatively unscathed. They were unscathed, but they were scared. And one of the first acts they did was to take stock of their food. They had just a few meager lunches and uh, some tins of fish left over, and they began to ration that food. But the next step they took was to turn to Jose Henriquez. Now, Jose was a fellow miner who had boldly lived out his faith in Jesus Christ among them. And despite uh, all the, the mocking and the jeering over the years, uh, it didn't take long for Jose's co-workers to turn to him and to say, Jose, do something. Do something. You're, you are a man of faith. What can we do in this time? This part of the story sort of reminds me a little bit of the Old Testament story of Jonah. Remember the story of Jonah? That prophet who's running away from God, he doesn't want to listen to Yahweh, he doesn't want to go to the people that God is directing him toward, and so he boards a ship to run away. Uh, the, the sailors that are with him don't care about his beliefs. They, in fact, don't really believe what he believes. And yet when the storm comes up, <laughs> when the crisis hits, what happens? Very quickly they turn to Jonah. Anything, do anything. If you say that this is because of your God, if this is why it's happening, then, then we'll do whatever you think it takes to appease your God. Very quickly they become Uh, believers or quasi-believers, at least seekers in a time of crisis. It also reminds me of a story in my own life. When I was 19 years old, 
I was playing in a playoff game, playoff hockey game. And during the game, uh, one of my teammates was hit behind the net. I can remember it like it was yesterday. I remember being on the bench and looking back. And uh, Willie was his name. And Willie was behind the, the net and he was on the ice and he was convulsing. And by the time our trainer got out there, uh, he was not breathing. I've never seen a hockey arena get so quiet so fast. And all of us players, all of his friends, his brothers on the team were terrified. He was rushed by ambulance to the local hospital. And in between uh, that day and the next game that was to be played, we had so many conversations with the organization and with the league and amongst us as players uh, and as coaches. What do we do? We talked about, you know, maybe we should try to postpone. We should wait. Uh, We didn't really have a full diagnosis on how Willie was doing. He was in stable but still serious condition. The league left it up to us as organizations about what to do. And when the players gathered around, we talked about uh, maybe we should even just forfeit. Maybe we should give up, award the series to the other team. Uh, But after we talked about it a little while and and realized that Willie would would want the team to keep playing, the players had one condition. We'll play, but they, they turned to me and they said, only if you lead us in prayers before the next game. And in fact, we weren't even the only ones. The league and the organization asked my father, who was a pastor, to come and to pray in the arena after the anthem before the game began. What an amazing sight. As we all gathered and stood and offered up prayers to God in a time of crisis. I can't tell you how many times, friends, over the last couple weeks that I've had people excuse me, ask me to pray with them or for them. One thing we simply haven't talked about in this series is the reality that actually we too have a mission with prayer. And prayer isn't just a, a sort of internal private thing that we do on our own. We have a, a mission to pray for our world. This is a part of what prayer is. It's not just for me. It's not even just for all of us here at this church. Prayer is to pray for and with the world. And I'm telling you, our world right now is desperate for prayer. They are hungry to gather with us and pray with us. Those who had been so skeptical, those who had been so standoffish are now suddenly in this crisis willing to say, you know what? Maybe it can't hurt. Maybe I could just offer this one prayer. Maybe you could help me pray through this. I'm I'm scared anxious. I don't know where to turn. Back to those miners. 33 miners turned to Jose. They asked him to do something. But what do you do when you're trapped 2,000 feet below the earth's surface? You can't dig. You can't call. You can't even arrange a Zoom meeting. Although I'll tell you, a few of the Zoom meetings I've been on in the last couple weeks look a little bit like they've been 2,000 feet under the earth's surface. But the one thing you can do is you can pray. 
And that's what Jose did. Jose gathered them together to pray on August 5th, the day of the collapse. And they prayed together that day, but not just that day. They prayed together every single day. Gathering at noon to pray prayers together. They even had a little liturgy that they went through in their prayers. Collectively, they prayed. They never missed a day to gather and pray. 2,000 feet below the earth's surface, they gathered daily for church. What an amazing, wonderful image. Sort of reminds me of the image of the catacombs in the early church. The the burial, the grave sites of those early Christians, where before uh, Christianity was made legal, Christians would sneak out of the city of Rome and they would go to the catacombs and they would go down into the pit, into the graves, and they would gather and they would worship and they would pray. There was progress being made above in the first week, but then a major setback, another cave-in that further diminished the chances of finding anyone alive. There was no communication for more than two weeks, and the initial optimism began to turn to despair. The digging continued for more than two weeks. Three different contingency plans were drawn up, and work was begun. And finally, on August 22nd, more than two weeks after the initial collapse, with no communication, by the way, that's three more days than the quarantining that some of you have done. 17 days, a drilling probe was brought to the surface with a mark of fresh, bright red spray paint on it. You might even say blood red markings. Hope from the pit, from the depth of the tombs the form, in the form of a blood red stain. Friends, you can't make this stuff up. You want a modern parable for the Easter story? Here it is. From the pit of death, where everything seemed hopeless, a sign of hope in a resurrected probe that was stained blood red. And attached to the end of the probe was a note, also scrawled in red. We are fine in the shelter, the 33. At least, that's what Google Translate tells me it says. My Spanish is muy pequeño. What those on the surface would discover later is that the 33 had been fasting and praying for 17 days straight. Jose would later say that the prayers sustained their fasting so that that they could go 72 hours with no food. And then when they did get a small rationed portion of food, it was, you know, smaller than a finger sandwich. A little piece of fish. Fasting and praying. Hoping and praying. Their fate in the hands of God. And by the next day after the surface probe had emerged and been marked, they were able to carry food and water, water and communication. And so, uh, end of story, right? <laughs> no, in some senses, the miners were saved. They were no longer in utter darkness and alone in the pit. They had a glimpse of life on the surface. But life in the full light of day was, was abundant life, and they simply did not have that luxury. They did not have that kind of light in the pit. And so while the world rejoiced, and and rightfully so, it was uh, quite a feat, the ordeal was far from over. You see, friends, the miners were saved, but they were not yet rescued. 
The miners were saved, but they were not yet rescued. Their prayers had been answered, but not yet fully realized. Let me extend the metaphor further to make clear what I'm getting at. The blood-red stain that first marked their salvation, which went down to the pit only to be resurrected to the surface again, is what we celebrate this weekend. It is Easter weekend. That the prayers of all God's people have been answered in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The Bible says this over and over in so many different ways. He who knew no sin became sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1.29 For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes through a man as well. 1 Corinthians 15.21 For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 8. And I could go on and on. We are saved by the cross and the empty grave of the Son of God. There is no more foundational truth in the Christian story than that. But if you haven't noticed, we are not yet rescued from sin, death, and the devil. We are not free from pain and suffering. Crisis continues. We are still praying for provision and pardon and protection. You see, the Christian faith itself is rooted in praise. And what we begin this prayer with and what we end this prayer with. Give thanks in all things. Give thanks in every circumstance, Thessalonians tells us. That's what what makes this closing of the prayer so appropriate to us as praying people. But that doxology of praise, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory, Lord, now and for all eternity, is a specific kind of praise. We conclude our prayer with a praise that is rooted in hope. Hope. Not optimism. Not in human potential. God's hope. I've shared this quote with you before, but I want to read it again. It's from the writer David Bentley Hart. He says, Ours is a faith that has set us free from optimism long ago and taught us hope instead. You see, friends, the difference between these two, between hope and optimism, is that optimism is something that we pretend to be in control of. Whereas hope is set in a foundation of humility. Your timing, Father. Your control, your plan, it's all you, your way. I release my expectations, all my optimism, and I take hold, I grasp hold of your hope. Romans 8 says this, For in this hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. For hope Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait patiently. You see, hope is the enlarging of our expectations, even though the source and the foundation of that enlarging expectation is not yet fully known or understood. Hope that is seen is no hope at all. Hope in the coming kingdom and the power and the glory of God the Father through the work of His Spirit and the return of His risen Son at the end of all time. 
October 13th. October 13th was the day that the first Chilean miner was finally extracted from the deep pit. If, if you're adding it up, that's 47 days after that blood-red stained salvation first appeared from that mineral grave. And the Bible tells us, and especially during times like these of pandemic and crisis, our, our own experience reminds us too that we live in the dark days of hope between August 17th and October 13th. The dark days of hope. Friends, we have been found. We have been saved and yet we are not fully rescued. We hold on to the hope that we have in the blood of our Savior, but our captivity, our days of darkness are far from over. Our prayers calling out to be found in the dark caves of our lives have been answered. This is the joy and the freedom that is the Christian life. Light has broken in. Love has reached us in in a different world. We have been sustained by nourishment from above. We have been saved by the blood of the Lamb. And if you haven't experienced that liberation from your own pit, I invite you today to receive that invitation right where you are. Christ has found you. You you have been extended an offer to be rescued from this pit. His Spirit has broken into darkness. His Spirit is calling you. It is reaching out to your spirit. Don't delay. Don't hesitate. Know that you are forgiven. But our prayers don't stop with Easter Sunday. We still live in the dark days of hope. We still need provision and pardon and protection. There will come a day when, when all that remains of our prayers is praise and we all look forward to that day, but that is not the day today. Until then, we lean into hope. For we have been saved, but we have not yet been fully rescued. And so when the earthly chaos strikes as it has, when isolation feels unbearable to us, when our physical health is at risk, when our mental health is disintegrating, when our jobs are cut, our bank accounts slashed, our relationships strained and broken, we continue to pray bold prayers of hope. Prayers of provision and pardon and protection. But don't forget the prayers of hope-filled praise. Father, we know that you have found us in our grave. You have breathed life into us. You have sustained us. You have brought us hope that one day we will be fully with you. The completion of that rescue mission that that has already found us. Father, we declare to you on this Resurrection Sunday that yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So friends... I hope you join me in proclaiming that very thing this morning. As our Savior taught us, we are bold to pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil.
For the kingdom and the power and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen.